Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. Today, another look at lessons learned during the coronavirus outbreak. Few places in the world have done a better job of suppressing the coronavirus than Taiwan. More than three months after a 50-year-old woman became the island's first case, only six people have died from the virus. In contrast, New York State, which has a similar population, has lost over 18,000 lives. What makes Taiwan's success even more remarkable is that it came despite the fact that it is only 100 miles from mainland China, where the virus originated, and despite the fact that it shares extensive economic links with the mainland. And Taiwan accomplished this feat without resorting to the economic shutdown seen in the United States and elsewhere. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at what Taiwan got right and what this means for its future. Siaru Shirley Lin is Compton Visiting Professor in World Politics at the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Dr. Chunhui Chi is Director of the Center for Global Health at Oregon State University. These two experts speak with Daniel Russell, Vice President for International Diplomacy and Security at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Dr. Chi begins the conversation by listing four main reasons for Taiwan's successful smothering of the virus. I can summarize uh, the four key policy response that helped Taiwan rather effective, quoting the London's The Telegraph, Taiwan set the gold standard. And then last Sunday, the New York Post has an article that said, Taiwan is the only nation in the world that did the right thing against this pandemic. So the four main uh, policy issues, the first one is Taiwan did a very advanced planning and advanced deployment. And probably few countries uh, did the preparation as early as Taiwan, and that dated back to 2003, because Taiwan was badly burned uh, in 2003 and prepared. And at the end of 2003, SARS, Taiwan decided never again Taiwan should face a pandemic like that unprepared. So Taiwan had 16 plus a year to prepare that. And then Taiwan activated uh, its uh, command center even before Taiwan had its first case. And one of the, the magic is at that time, Taiwan already foreseeing the shortage of masks. So also consolidated, monopolized masks by the government and then prepared building new mask uh, production line. And the second a key policy uh, Success is Taiwan demonstrated what a good governance, particularly in a democracy, can do. And the, the, the command center is a kind of a ideal in, in the Latin word, the communitas, meaning put every administration in equal, but it's a, in a very transparent way to communicate. And people, as, as a result of that, the command center earned a huge trust among the public. No politician or public figure ever gets such a high approval rate. The commander, the Dr. Chen, the Minister of Health, has a 92% approval rate in Taiwan. And then the third important uh, background is uh, because of the 2003 SARS experience, uh, compounded by Taiwan has been internationally politically isolated and that forged a major uh, social climate of social solidarity, which is not easy because Taiwan just went through a highly divisive presidential election on January 11. And so that's kind of a mag magic phenomenon. And the last one is the Taiwan has very advanced information technology that allowed Taiwan 
to a very different way of containing the, the, the pandemic. Uh, unlike uh, South Korea or other nations did a mass testing, Taiwan did a precision tracking and testing. That allowed Taiwan to very efficiently contain uh, the, the pandemic. Thanks for, those are four interesting and important points, advanced planning, centralized government, uh, coordinating uh, process that one public trust, uh, political solidarity, and uh, advanced uh, technology. I, I'd like to drill down a little bit on the technology part, if I could. Um, uh, I read in your article a reference to something called digital fence monitoring. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how technology was applied in Taiwan. Uh, it's, it's a joint effort, collaboration between the government, the command center, with five major cell phone carriers. And the technology is based on the cell phone signals. And Taiwan require everyone who are under mandatory quarantine to download an app. And with that app, uh, Taiwan can easily and, and clearly monitor people who are under quarantine, whether they violated quarantine. For example, that app will have the, the person under quarantine send out signal every 10 minutes. And if the command center did not receive the, the signal, more than 20 minutes, they immediately contact local police and health officials to visit the person. And then in the case the person violated the, the quarantine, went to public places, the command center will know where are those public places down to the date and time, and even for which public transportation that the person took. And then they immediately announced that if anyone visited those places, you have to watch careful for your symptom because you might have contact uh, with with the with the person who are, who are infected, so that's how Taiwan can very precisely track and and trace po potential exposure and then test it. Not the large population, but people who potentially have in contact uh, with the the confirmed patient. Can I just add really, to that? Please, surely. On the technology front, yeah, I think that uh, to add to what Junhui uh, was saying. Um, act, acting swiftly was very important uh, in that, of course, technology was extensively used. Over 55,000 smartphones uh, basically were uh, downloaded this app and tracked potential carriers of COVID-19, which effectively, of course, contain any further uh, spread among the community. Um, but I wanted to get back to also the fact that acting swiftly really set the foundation for Taiwan's success uh, which had all of the elements Junhui talked about. Uh, one of them uh, I think is also very important, I would add, is transparency. Um, mm -hmm. and this is a lesson learned during SARS, uh, where Taiwan had um, basically uh, 181 deaths. And so every year, Taiwan was rehearsing for another pandemic. So the dissemination of information on prevention uh, has also kept the citizens safe and informed. And I think... Um, that is uh, something to note. Um, the other thing I would add is that Taiwan was a key producer and exporter of masks. And that was also quite important because it was able to respond to ensure mass supply to the citizens, uh, partially thanks to Taiwanese manufacturers who have moved back to Taiwan uh, due to various reasons, both economic and political reasons from China in the last few years. So not only are all citizens insured of sufficient masks, 
And uh, having been here throughout the uh, pandemic in Taipei, we now get nine masks every 14 days. I just went to get my nine masks. But I feel sorry for saying that because actually um, we now are able to, using the app, click and donate all of the masks that I'm entitled to pick up uh, and give it to um, the rest of the world. And this um, further helps the um, uh, the rest of the world fight the pandemic, uh, widely considered called mass diplomacy. But originally it was after the government had donated 10 million masks. But today Taiwanese people have given more than a million masks away. I want to comment that Taiwan was the first nation uh, to implement universal access to masks. Well, I want to come back later uh, in the conversation to uh, mask diplomacy and sort of the, the political dimension of it. But what comes through very loud and clear is uh, the extent to which uh, the authorities uh, moved quickly, uh, that they, they, they saw early on the need to uh, take action and, and responded to that uh, very fast. And I wonder, you know, to what extent does that mean that uh, Taipei just didn't take Beijing's statements about the virus uh, or its silence about the uh, virus at uh, face value. Uh, what was going on in late December when sort of rumors about a virus in Wuhan uh, started to come out, but no hard and fast uh, information? Chinwei, were you uh, tracking that? Is that something that you yes. saw? Yes, one of the reasons John Hopkins predicted Taiwan would be the worst hot-hit country outside China was based on last year, there were 7 million visits between Taiwan and China by Taiwanese alone. This did not include right. Chinese. And that frequent visit included over half million Taiwanese business, businessmen and together with their family, about 2 million live, live long-term in China. So that frequent visit gives Taiwan an advantage of information because there are lots of Taiwanese in Wuhan back and forth. And, and that flight between Taiwan and, and nearby airport never stopped, continued every day. So that gives Taiwan an advantage of, of insider information. So Taiwan knew back in December something wrong was happening. So Taiwan actually was the first nation uh, to warn WHO on December 31st about this disease. But unfortunately, WHO kind of ignored, did not take any action. Also, Taiwan's action dated back to as early as the same day, December 31st. Taiwan was the first nation to, to implement an onboard inspection of all passengers from Wuhan to Taiwan. Mm. So December 31st was, was the first day Taiwan took action. Wow, that's really important. I'll just add to that, uh, Danny, that of course, Taiwan as a... Um, uh, a country that hardly belongs to any international organization was going about uh, looking at information uh, at, uh, in Wuhan carefully, but really um, not really being in any sort of collaborative effort. And so it was going at it alone with few um, diplomatic partners as well, and only a, f a hundred miles away from China with direct flights to Wuhan. Um, uh, at the onset of the pandemic. So uh, the threat that Taiwan faced in terms of healthcare, in terms of this pandemic was much worse. Uh, I would say that the closest comparison is Hong Kong, um, but uh, it is really, um, there have been more than 700 Taiwanese who have evacuated, uh, um, left Wuhan and returned. 
with very little community spread after their return. Uh, there are a few hundred more. Uh, but this is something quite um, astounding in terms of the distance uh, and the measures they had to take. Uh, but I will add one um, unintended consequence of uh, the political tension in the Taiwan Strait as helping, having helped Taiwan fight the pandemic early on. Um, rising tension has unintentionally benefited Taiwan because China had been, since 2016, uh, reducing the number of individual and group tourists coming from China to Taiwan. And in the, on in the um, uh, weeks before the 2020 presidential election, in order to influence Taiwanese not to vote for the Democratic Progressive Party, which won in a landslide in the presidential and legislative election in January 2020, um, uh, this, this restricted the flow of infected individuals from China to Taiwan, even before the government, of course, imposed border control. So you, you can see everything has a silver lining, perhaps. Wow. So who knew that there would be a silver lining to Beijing's efforts to put an economic squeeze on uh, Taiwan in the run-up to the elections? That's pretty ironic. Well, uh, surely you mentioned Hong Kong. Chun uh, you talked about the, uh, the travelers and so on. And so uh, let me ask you to help us kind of put this into perspective, uh, put Taiwan's experience into perspective relative to the rest of the world. So, so it, you know, for me, um, you know, it, it, it occurred to me that you take Australia, uh, which is considered certainly in, in the United States to have done a very credible job in containing the virus. Uh, it's an island uh, nation with a population of about 25 million people. It's about, you know, four or 5,000 miles away from China. Um, They've had almost 7,000 uh, cases and about 90 deaths. Taiwan is also an island. The population is virtually the same size. As Shirley mentioned, it's only 100 miles from the mainland. You gave the statistics about the tremendous number of visitors from the mainland, of uh, Taiwanese who go or live there and come back and so on. And yet, uh, Taiwan has had less than, I think, a tenth of the cases or the fatalities uh, as Australia did. I mean, that's just one example, uh, which is a little bit mysterious to me. Uh, I'm interested also in sort of Taiwan relative to other places as well. Maybe you could help us understand well, kind of... Well, Daniel, what, um, what, talk about the Hong Kong and what I am particularly um, focused on, which is the United States, different states. And I know Junhui has the answer to the comparison with uh, the rest of the world. Um, and, but uh, Hong Kong, of course, has very few deaths like Taiwan, uh, but the infection confirmed cases is three times that of Taiwan. But uh, it's a city that is um, only a third of um, uh, Taiwan's population. But of course, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't have um, uh, it's not an island, and therefore it's much harder to contain. But uh, if you look at, I think, two other examples that are similar to Taiwan in size uh, is New York State and Florida. Now, both have a population that are similar, not exactly to Taiwan, um, but Florida, which has been um, 
of course, lifting its social isolation policy because it's done, quote, a good job, has now 33,000 cases and 1,200 deaths. That's 200 times the number of fatality in Taiwan. Uh, in New York State, um, uh, where my children live, um, they have nearly 300,000 cases and 18,000 deaths. So I find that really astounding. Um, and I'd love to hear from Junhui as to all the best comparative examples. Well, uh, I, I, I look at a little bit about those countries. So uh, some of the figures I'm particularly interested, uh, besides the total number of deaths, I'm also interested in the case fatality rate, meaning of people who confirm how many uh, died, the percentage. And the case fatality rate in Taiwan is, is not the lowest because Taiwan has so few cases. And actually, for the few countries I look, the Singapore has the lowest case fatality rate of 0.09%, mainly because Singapore has a, a large cases uh, of 5.7 million population. Singapore has over 15,000 cases. Yet, Singapore was successful in, in keeping the fatality low with total of only 14 deaths. So that puts Singapore probably the number one in terms of the lowest case fatality rate. Hong Kong also has a very low case fatality rate uh, for the same reason with Singapore. Large number of cases, but few deaths. So Hong Kong's case fatality rate is only 0.39. And compared with that, Taiwan's case fatality rate is 1.4% because Taiwan has only 429 cases with six deaths. And Australia, despite, has a huge number relative to Taiwan. Uh, it was relatively successful in, in, in keeping uh, patient alive. So Australia's case fatality rate is slightly lower than Taiwan with 1.33%, mainly because it, ha it has huge number of cases. Contrast with that, uh, New York State has 6.1% case fatality rate. And U.S. as a whole have 5.79% case fatality rate. And South Korea uh, is also doing relatively good, uh, has 2.29%. The other figure I look at is for every median population, how many cases they have. And this one, Taiwan led the world. Well, Taiwan has 18 cases per million, and South Korea has 209, and Hong Kong has 140. Singapore has 2,744, and the U.S. has 3,230, and New York State has 15,361. So this shows the relative scale uh, of the preference. Well, uh, Shirley Chinway, I'm a New Yorker, and you're not making me feel any better. That's um, what you are now. I'm in New York, yeah. So, look, it's it's you know, Chinway, you stressed uh, the importance of the early start uh, that Taiwan had. Well, it's too late for us to be early, right? It's yes. late in the game right now. Uh, so are there things, uh, practices that other countries can replicate that societies like ours in the U.S. and New York uh, can imitate can, that would actually help us now at this point in the, uh, in the pandemic? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, one of the, one of the wrong messages uh, both WHO and U.S. leader, including CDC and, and Vice President and all level of health authority, as well as most European nations, 
for nearly two months, uh, from WHO down to every national leaders and, and health authority has been telling people the wrong message, telling the general public, don't wear a mask. Mask will not protect you. Whereas Taiwan, South Korea, and Hong Kong has from the beginning wearing masks. And my epidemiologist friend told me that in the absence of vaccine, when having the public wear masks serve the similar function of vaccine, you can cut off the spread. That's, that's mm -hmm. what the vaccine tried to do. And it took US and, and European countries until around second, second week of March to reverse that message, start to encourage. And LA City was the first city to mandatory mask wearing in, in most public places. And I'm hoping, well, some Americans are still confused because for two months, their leader tells them don't wear masks. And suddenly that's a reversal. Uh, it's hard to change. And I'm hoping as more people wearing masks in public places, it will cut off uh, the spread. And on top of that, uh, the contact tracing, testing, isolation, quarantine are important. And where Taiwan keep most things open, many indoor places actually require masks, especially school and public transportation. And that will be the measure that US and European country and any country consider to reopen economy need to take by requiring masks in most indoor public places and public transportation. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to add also to something that may not be uh, as useful in terms of uh, immediate policy impact, but I think it's very important to be said what could be done and uh, what actually um, has Taiwan done well. Um, I think more important than technology, manufacturing capability, or effective government policies, actually, um, what has allowed Taiwan to show the world it can work together as a community is one word. And it really cannot be done in the short term, but it must be, it must exist in the long term for any community or country to fight this pandemic. And that is trust. And the trust I'm talking about is not just a hierarchical trust, but it's trust between individual citizens, knowing that they're fighting this pandemic together. So I always wear a mask in Taipei, everyone does, especially now if you go into buildings, uh, it became required only recently in many government buildings, um, but it's been the case since I was here, since I've been here in January. Uh, so you observe social isolation, not for your own sake, but for the sake of your neighbors and for fellow Taiwanese, uh, trust between individuals and government so that you believe the data provided is real, um, follow the guidelines and policy being promoted or enforced, uh, and the government also trusts the citizens, and that's very important. Uh, so that it doesn't overextend efforts to enforce policies or try to prevent protests. Um, if there's trust, there is a less cost associated with enforcing policy, and everyone makes sacrifices for the community. Uh, this is what my research on cross-strait relations is about. A sense of solidarity actually is much more pronounced when there is an external threat, in this case COVID-19. But also there's a perceived threat um, from China, which has actively tried to block Taiwan from working with the WHO, even in this pandemic. And this sense of um, community um, reflects, of course, the strength, I think, the resiliency of a democracy, which is one of the things people have been questioning. Uh, is a democratic society able to fight the pandemic better? Um, and I won't go into that yet. But I think that 
um, for those watching the recent elections in Taiwan, many people say it's a divided society. Um, uh, but as a country, it has a competitive, highly competitive political system, a very strong sense of social solidarity and national identity, especially when it is threatened and it comes together as opposed to falling apart. Well, that's really, really interesting. And I'd like to kind of drill down a little bit on that if I, if I can, because uh, I, you know, I certainly agree and recognize the value and the power of uh, trust in a society. And I think it's admirable uh, that Taipei was able to uh, really uh, build trust. The relevant ministers, uh, as you both have mentioned, uh, enjoy just you know, spectacularly high approval ratings uh, domestically. Um, you know, in contrast, on the mainland, Beijing got compliance from the uh, public for very, very strict uh, quarantine and other measures, you know, basically through political brute force. The, the party state used a combination of cutting edge surveillance and, and other technologies along with old-fashioned Maoist or Mao-era mass mobilization uh, tactics to enforce uh, the guidelines. So in Taiwan, there was a, a sense of coming together, a sense of trust, but I keep coming back to the fact that, uh, in my experience, Taiwan is really a, a pretty fractious society. I mean, you yourself, Shirley, wrote very extensively about the sunflower protest movement, right? Um, and you mentioned the, the national election in January. That was very, very hard thought. There are sharp divides between green and blue. Uh, there are ethnic, uh, geographic, generational divides and so on. So here's a very, you know, here's a freewheeling uh, democracy. Uh, other democracies have really struggled uh, and been unable uh, to build a national consensus. We're going to take a short break here to talk about a couple of upcoming members-only programs here at Asia Society. On Thursday, May 14th, Min Jin Lee, author of the award-winning novel Pachinko, will speak with Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski. And on Tuesday, May 19th, we'll be presenting our annual Osborne Elliott Prize for Excellence in Journalism in Asia, an award given to some of the world's most distinguished writers and reporters of the last two decades. To find out more about all the terrific benefits of membership at Asia Society, such as being able to watch these programs live, go to asiasociety.org membership. And now let's get back to Siaru Shirley Lin, Chun Hui Chi, and Daniel Russell. Tell me a little bit more about how it was, what it was that allowed the authorities in Taipei to really cut past these divisions and create a, a unified uh, sense of, of urgency. I will just uh, go straight to the, the question you posed about the sunflower movement as an illustration of the um, uh, of what you're asking, Danny, um, and uh, I'd love to hear Junghui's thought about this. But I think the Sunflower Movement actually exemplifies in my book as the last chapter, uh, really what I'm talking about, which is um, a democratic society promotes uh, openness and discussion and disagreement um, that is aired honestly, uh, competitively. 
um, and um, fairly. Uh, and the Sunflower Movement uh, was organized among young people who felt actually as a community that Taiwan was threatened by China. And this is, of course, is after 2012, after Xi Jinping's ascent. Slowly but surely, there were changes, uh, and that led to concerns about uh, carrying on uh, with the implementation and execution of the service trade agreement. So it's a separate topic that actually illustrates the same point, and um, uh, is when the community, when a democratic community is threatened, it can actually uh, result in um, uh, the best uh, that it could be. And the same thing happened when, for example, 911. After 911, I think um, that there were clear evidence that Americans felt more proud of being American um, and came together. Um, and I think today uh, Americans are, are trying to come together to, to fight the pandemic. Uh, but the pandemic raises the question of which actually system is better in managing the um, economy, uh, a better system of government. So um, the U.S. has led a liberal order, which is founded on promoting democracy. And that is what's being challenged um, by Beijing's leadership, some believe. This COVID-19 pandemic is another test of which system may serve its people better. Now, there's a longstanding dilemma, of course, when you look at the two systems. Do people want more freedom and privacy? Or are they, which are more likely to be given in the democratic system, or more security and stability, which are given to the majority in an authoritarian system, uh, which I think uh, a lot of people feel that are more effective um, and uh, you know, effectiveness uh, and equity um, and fairness. There are all these different trade-offs. So I think that um, it will be beneficial for the world to know actually how Taiwan has done it as a democratic community. And I think that it has shown that uh, it has more, um, there's more solidarity in crisis. Can I pick up on, on that point uh, with both of you? One of the questions that came in uh, from YouTube, this one from Uma, is how uh, the public reacted to on privacy issues uh, when required by the government to share all this personal uh, data on the app. Did, was that a, a point of contention within Taiwan society? Uh, that issue was uh, hardly contested, mainly because of the trust. Uh, most Taiwanese people, particularly based on their experience from SARS, they knew this is an unusual situation. This is an exception. And we need to sacrifice a little bit of that privacy. And besides, that's not, not for the, the enrichment of the privacy is not for everyone. It's only for those people who are under mandatory quarantine. And government also explained those location data you are already given up to your cell phone carrier. And Google also has that. Facebook also has that. So if people are willingly giving up their privacy to private company, why not, especially in the case of emergency, uh, for the sake of public safety, give up a little bit of privacy? So mm -hmm. from my observation, there was very little debate in Taiwan about this. Let me shift gears for a moment, if I could. Both of you have mentioned uh, the WHO, and I think there's a lot to unpack here. But I wonder, Shirley, would you be willing to give the audience just the, the very uh, basic uh, overview of uh, Taiwan's relationship or, or lack of relationship with the WHO and, and how uh, the PRC has factored into that? Uh, okay, I'll uh, be brief. Um, 
uh, in the background, but uh, uh, many viewers will probably know the issue quite well from uh, the headlines in the last two weeks. Uh, some people believe that international organizations have been politicized uh, and, and in that there's a perception that Beijing has had an increased role in extending its influence uh, so that multilateralism is being undermined. Um, and these organizations, which ostensibly should exist to improve the welfare of human uh, beings, sort of uh, the, what has happened is running against the basic mission of the World Health Organization. Now, Beijing has limited Taiwan's ability to work with the WHO, not only restricting um, the effectiveness of this critically important organization, um, but also sending a message to people of Taiwan that does not promote the sense of solidarity between the Chinese and Taiwanese, whom Beijing claims to be compatriots. That's at the cross-strait relations level. Now, at the international level, uh, since it left the United Nations in 1971, Taiwan has not been a member of the World Health Organization. Under the One China Policy, the United Nations and the WHO do not accept Taiwan as a member because of Beijing's object objections. However, when President Ma, who was seen, um, seen as being more pro-China, was elected in 2008 and returned to the 92 consensus, which implied both sides set unification as their ultimate goal. Taiwan was permitted um, to be an observer for about seven years until the election of Tsai Ing-wen of the DPP in 2016. Furthermore, under a secret um, MOU signed between the PRC and the WHO in 2005, Taiwan's participation in the WHO, even in a healthcare emergency, which could be defined as COVID-19, it's ambiguous, uh, but this has been conditional upon Beijing's mission to the UN agencies in Geneva and the Chinese foreign ministry in Beijing approving any kind of participation, even in technical meetings, um, uh, by Taiwan, which effectively means that Taiwan often, even when it was able to participate in very few meetings, it would get the invitation hours before you need to get to the meeting, um, and it's too late. So um, uh, Taiwan was not able to, uh, to do anything. Now, this time around with the pandemic, um, uh, the absurdity of the situation has been further accentuated um, uh, because uh, Taiwan has not been able to get data except through China, and China is supposed to send um, people to Taiwan, of course, which uh, has not uh, happened. And um, people, um, I think, in general, the, um, the world is saying, is this an example of China extending its influence, not by funding um, international organi organizations like WHO, but by developing bilateral relationships, in this case with Ethiopia, uh, where Tedro, the director general, was the health minister and seemed to be under increasing pressure from the very start uh, to take China's position. Now, this is um, the, the, the background of the WHO uh, controversy. And the most recent bid, um, I will leave the interpretation uh, to you both, but the recent bid, of course, is Taiwan then has been working more closely with the U.S. during the pandemic and last Friday, um, uh, well, actually, just a few days ago, a virtual meeting between Taiwan's Minister of Health and Welfare and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Service, uh, a secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services took place, where um, the U.S. seems to support Taiwan's uh, participation in some form in the WHO. So one, of the, one of the online questions, surely, is, is to that point precisely, what are the prospects of Taiwan getting some sort of special dispensation in the future in order to be able to participate in 
World Health Organization or World Health Assembly uh, work. I think this is why the virtual meeting was very important because the annual meeting is coming up. But I like to actually ask a question to Junhui. How important, yes. some people say, actually, the WHO may not be so important anymore because Taiwan didn't belong to it and was able to fight the pandemic. Well, I think WHO serves still um, has an important function to play. And I wonder what Junhui thinks. Right, what, what it means in terms of public health uh, and also just how you, how you view it as a medical professional. Yes, for nearly two decades, Taiwan has been struggling to try to participate in WHO without much success. But this pandemic uh, kind of shifted both Taiwan's perspective and position. Because for nearly two decades, Taiwan's request to rejoin to participate WHO was not to be left out in important information, important collaboration. Taiwan need help from WHO. But because of the success of Taiwan's uh, control of this pandemic, and actually uh, some would comment, and I, I agree, Taiwan this time benefited from not being a member of WHO because of WHO's both slow response and wrong information. And so Taiwan, Taiwan didn't suffer from that. And I, I even have some, some professional friends in Taiwan said this. They said, well, Taiwan being the most successful country in, in defending this COVID-19 is actually an, a big embarrassment for WHO. And some would even argue, uh, Taiwan should not join WHO at this time because of all the problems uh, Sherry talked about. And so Taiwan has changed its perspective as well as position. Increasingly, uh, Taiwan is reversing uh, the, the, the plight that instead of Taiwan need WHO's help, now, Taiwan is saying, we can help WHO, we can help the world. So that has a big change of attitude and, and perception. Well, well that's, that is really a, an interesting point and uh, quite an ironic uh, I think, uh, turnabout. I think I add to what Junhui is saying, Danny. I think um, you asked the question, what are the prospects? And I guess I would avoid answering that because uh, making forecasts so close to the date is quite dangerous. But I would say in terms of what should be, it's very clear that Taiwan uh, is uh, an important part uh, of the world, uh, especially in uh, fighting the pandemic. Um, and more than ever, we need um, countries to come together to collaborate, to find um, not only um, uh, a way to treat, but to find a vaccine. And Taiwan can absolutely be part of this community uh, and help other countries fi uh, figure out um, uh, creative public policy uh, and effective way uh, to govern. So um, I think that there is no doubt that uh, very rarely has Taiwan been in the news um, uh, for, uh, I think, being a model to the world. And um, as uh, one of my friends, Shelley, would go to say, as an end in itself, in sort of uh, Taiwan um, effectively governing for the benefit of the Taiwanese um, and for their health and also to be a responsible member of the global community to help the world. So I think there's no doubt that Taiwan deserves to be in, um, to be participating in the WHO. Um, uh, one of the questions that is coming in online from a number of people has to do with the uh, economy and the economic uh, impact of the COVID virus and the countermeasures as well. Uh, and so our viewers are asking, 
both um, how Taiwan has been dealing with the sort of tug of war, the zero sum dynamic between uh, heavier focus on prevention and health uh, versus a heavier focus on preserving and protecting uh, the economy. And also we've got questions simply about the very basic question of, of what's the extent of the adverse economic impact uh, thus far in Taiwan, uh, both from the local as well as from the, the global fallout. Well, uh, I I would leave the economic question for the for, for Sherry. I just want to comment about the the concept of the zero sum game between protecting the public safety versus economy. And in fact, Taiwan has demonstrated that it is possible uh, to mini minimize the impact, the negative impact on the economy by doing a highly competent job in protecting public safety. So the two are not contradictory to each other. It is when the, the government, the, the, the society is not able to protect the public safe, safety that the government have to sacrifice the economy. So I would see that as, as, as a different way to put it. And that's what I have been strongly advocate uh, in, my, in my numerous interviews by journalists. How can we reopen the economy? And the only way to reopen the economy is by putting more resources to contain the, the, the spread of the disease so we can reopen the economy early. So this actually complement each other. And because Taiwan is so successful relative to, despite its economy also suffered a little bit, but relative to other countries, uh, Taiwan has probably the minimal negative impact on its economy. I guess I'm more pessimistic, Danny, um, uh, in terms of the trade-off, but I agree with Zhonghui. I don't think, and I think, Cuomo said this well, it's not either or. Death is not an either or question. Uh, we have to survive. And so I don't think that it's the economy for controlling the pandemic. We have to control the pandemic for, um, uh, to survive. And I just want to start off before I get into the economy uh, to say that while Taiwan remains open and normal, um, I'm very cautiously optimistic about what will happen uh, restaurants and businesses stay open, but the risk of another wave um, of the virus spreading is always there because the, the world is global and Taiwan is an important part of the global supply chain. Um, my mother had run a successful French restaurant in Taipei in 2003 um, with uh, the home that I grew up with. During SARS, I remember clearly how the business improved so dramatically during the pandemic because everybody wanted to find a high-end restaurant that was clean because they, didn't, they weren't going to just stay home. But this ironically led to my mother facing the dilemma um, and she shut down the business and fired, uh, lay off all the workers because she was worried everybody was going to catch SARS from increasing business. So um, as a way to start talking about the economy, we take, can't take it for granted that we move from a pandemic um, uh, to a sort of economic recovery when it's over. I think that the... Um, uh, the fact that a pandemic is like an economic, uh, like a financial crisis. And um, in the coming months, I think that this will test the sense of solidarity that I talk so much about. In fact, I'm quite concerned because eventually this will be tested as the economy, which grew 2.7% in 2019, one of the highest among high income economies um, in Asia, is estimated to decline 4% this year. 
Now that is dramatic. Now that is dramatic as a slowdown in bigger economies like China, which is facing its own challenges. So everybody is going through the same pain. Um, but the government has already initiated relief measures in terms of fiscal stimulus, giving out vouchers, subsidies, benefits for needed groups, the unemployed. But how much are people willing to sacrifice their own well-being in the process of redistribution of benefits? There's limited amount of resources, um, and we are going to have to decide how to help different groups. Uh, and there's already a lot of controversy in the U.S. with some of the measures uh, being carried out, and likewise here uh, with what the DPP had uh, decided to do against what I think some of the uh, legislators and leaders in the KMT were proposing. So unemployment is uh, going to rise, and I think the community as a whole is going to have to seek consensus on policy to revive the economy. Um, we don't have a lot of time here, but I would say that the changing global supply chain, especially in Asia, vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, is going to hit Taiwan very hard, presenting both opportunities, but uh, for the short term, many more challenges. Um, while I just talked about Taiwanese businesses returning to Taiwan, it's not as if uh, their return actually immediately improved uh, the business environment and uh, their uh, profitability. I think everyone's going to suffer from decline in demand uh, and this, re, uh, if you will, the reconfiguration of the supply chain. And so I think that um, the government is going to step in and that leads to a final question. Um, the state will become more important in many parts of the world uh, and Taiwan as well. Now, is that something actually people are looking forward to? Um, I remain cautious about that. Thank you, Shirley. Um, we have moved into overtime uh, now. Uh, this has been such an exciting and interesting conversation. Uh, but before we wrap up, let's do a lightning round uh, because uh, we're getting online uh, the very same question that uh, I've been wanting to ask about the elephant in the room, uh, China. And for Chunhui, uh, my question is, uh, what credibility do you think China's numbers have uh, when it comes to coronavirus? How, how believable are they, particularly uh, when the party uh, declared victory and suddenly the uh, numbers began dram dramatically to drop? And for you, Shirley, also lightning round, uh, could you just share a little bit of your uh, instinct and thoughts about what the longer term impact of uh, COVID-19 uh, may be on cross-strait relations. But you may please start. Yes, um, actually I, I don't, I'm not alone. I don't trust the figure China reported and quoting uh, Dr. Gabriel Liang, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Hong Kong back in February in a, in a press conference when he was asked about China's figure, he said, his, his team has done an estimation and simulation, and he said the China's reported figure we should multiply at least 30 times. That's the word from Gabriel Young. And on top of that, uh, who is deciding how many number to report in China? That's the Communist Party, not the health officials. And for a period of time, my friend noticed in, in Taiwan that for more than a week, when they, this was back in late January and early February, every day China reported new cases and new fatality. And then one, one of my friends noticed that they have a magic number. No matter how many new number, new, new cases China report, and no matter how many new deaths China report, 
their case fatality rate came to exactly the same. So that has to be massaged. And also there are some international organizations, they reported two world figures. One is the general world figure, including China. The other is the world figure without China. And most people would trust the world figure without China because many people by now don't trust the number China reporting. And that's unfortunate. And even, even Chinese people don't trust the number their government reporting. Thanks. Shirley uh, on cross-strait relations. Danny, it's very interesting. The pandemic, everyone says, is a game changer. Um, I personally don't subscribe to that at all in terms of uh, cross-strait relations or U.S.-China-Taiwan relations. Um, and that's because I think it actually accentuates the trends that are already existing for quite some time um, in both relations, cross-strait relations or, uh, as I said, the, tri the trilateral relations. Um, as a democracy under attack, basically, uh, facing China uh, day in and day out. The pandemic is yet another episode of Taiwan potentially becoming weaker. And if it doesn't withstand this challenge, there will be um, uh, severe consequences. Taiwan cannot afford, uh, actually, uh, to ever, um, uh, if you will, uh, be fractious. The stakes are too high. Um, and so Taiwanese are quite sensitive to these uh, issues. And one example is, of course, fake news, uh, which uh, has been promoted uh, by China. Now, um, to learn to fight the virus, resist misinformation, and trust official information, there's a lot of training in this the Taiwanese uh, voters and people have because of the onslaught of misinformation being spread by uh, uh, China-based um, uh, sort of originated uh, news. So early on, of course, for example, there were flights from China which uh, had uh, carry people back from Wuhan, and there were rumors that there were people who were deliberately infected on those flights that were being sent on the plane to come and infect the Taiwan. But why would there be rumors like that? And people believe that, of course, because many people believe that Taiwan, if Taiwan does not fight the virus well, China should be able to take it over more easily. Even if China is under uh, the pandemic, in the pandemic, it will still view this as a very important opportunity. So um, with any kind of crisis, uh, China, Beijing will continue to coerce Taiwan with disinformation, interference, and increased military activities in the Taiwan Strait. And some are worried that Beijing will take advantage of American weakness and distraction to further its goal of unification uh, with Taiwan. So um, the pandemic, um, I think, is just uh, further showing the trend of increasing competition between the U.S. and China uh, and also the increased tension uh, in the Taiwan Strait. Um, so uh, I think the ultimate rivalry, of course, is not really the specific issues of trade, technology, or military, but again, competing on um, whose government system, uh, which system of governance uh, is more effective. That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia In-Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. And a reminder, wherever you are, to stay safe. We're in this together. I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time.